The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. I'm thrilled today to be speaking with Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a writer and speaker whose work focuses on themes of culture and identity. He has written a number of books, including The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and most recently, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know as Possible. He also leads online courses and in-person gatherings, writes essays, and has a podcast called The New and Ancient Story, where he speaks with other people traversing the realms of what he is often called the space between stories. I first met Charles in 2012, and there are several things that I often share with people when describing why his work has been so important in my life and why I find it so powerful. First, Charles has an amazing capacity to put words to things that I had felt for years but couldn't fully see because I couldn't articulate them. He's able to speak into visibility the underlying structures that have given rise to so many of the crises of our time. And by doing so, offered me the possibility of shifting my relationship to those structures and perhaps even shifting the structures themselves. Um, Secondly, Charles is unusual in his ability to marry intellectual rigor and empathy. His work and his presence combine head, heart, and spirit each strengthening the others, as anyone who has ever been in a workshop or event with Charles can likely attest. And finally, he is generous with his attention, his work, which he offers in the spirit of the gift, and with his time, including being here for this conversation today. Thank you, Charles, for being here and for all the ways you offer your work to the world. Welcome. So to get started, you have... You have a a fairly enormous body of work at this point, and I'm wondering, rather than have you give a summary of of what you've done so far, which could take us days, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what you're up to now, what you're writing about, what you're thinking about at the moment. Um, You know, where where everything ultimately, all roads lead to Rome, uh, and for me, Rome is the role that story or mythology plays in creating our 
our society, creating ourselves, even, you could say, even creating our reality. That's the basic <clears throat> template that I then apply to understand various things that are happening on the planet, such as politics, you know, or economics, or what I'm turning to now is the ecological crisis, which in a way kind of contains all of the other crises in, in miniature form or in, in um, maybe writ large, not miniature form. But, but so that's, that's where I'm, what I'm thinking about now and I'm writing a book on it and trying to understand what is the transition like into a relationship with the rest of life on this planet that is driven by a by the next story, by the mythology that we're stepping into to replace the one that's dissolving in front of us now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> as short as I can make it. I hope it's not too abstract. Well, can you talk a bit about, <clears throat> in, in looking through that, that lens, what are you seeing as far as what, what are the structures or, or mythologies that are keeping us where we are and what are the ones that are beginning to peek through? Well, like you mean in, in the area of uh, environment? and Yeah. Yeah. Well, so like one of the uh, major threads of the mythology is the idea that nature is uh, an object, a thing that is fundamentally separate from ourselves and that does not possess the qualities of a full self, of a full subject, such as consciousness or intelligence or purpose or anything like that, and, and that sees the world outside of ourselves as lacking any kind of organizing intelligence or directionality or purpose, except that which is generated by random chance. So it's kind of like the Newtonian Cartesian worldview that the next step then is to say, well, since there's no uh, purpose or intelligence with which we might interfere, the best thing we can do is to maximize human utility through our relationship to nature. Especially when we consider the forces of nature and the workings of of the world to be essentially random and impersonal and uncoordinated by any intelligence. So there's nothing to interfere with. So we need to then insulate ourselves as best as we can from the whimsical arbitrary forces of nature and maximize the return we get from nature. So part of the problem then, or part of the story is to see the world as a collection of quote, natural resources which we use to maximize our utility. So that whole worldview, I call that um, part of the story of of separation, the terminology I like to use. And what I'm seeing in the environmental movement is a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the policies, even though they're intended to uh, reverse the damage or stop the damage, they're still part of that basic mindset. So it's essentially, how can we more intelligently exploit 
nature. But I think that where the shift has to go to is, is to see nature as something that is uh, alive, intelligent, sacred, uh, a full self. So once we see nature that way, we begin asking different questions and a whole different set of policies would become natural. It's like, like, am I talking too long? No, it's great. I I can give like a little example. Like suppose, um, suppose you, suppose I say, you know, Annie, I've, I've got my fourth kid right now, my fourth son, and I'm sick of this. I don't want to take care of him. Let him out into the street. You know, let him fend for himself. Why not? And you say, well, Charles, if you do that, then you'll probably be arrested for child neglect. And even if you're not, he's going to grow up hating you and he won't support you in your old age. Mm -hmm. And I say, yeah, you're right. I guess I'd better take better care of him. That is, like, I'd say at least, like, two-thirds of the basic rhetoric around climate change uh, draws on a parallel, like, why should you care? Because bad things are going to happen to us. But if you have to tell me why I should take care of my own child, then there's already a problem. Something's already wrong. And even if you convince me, I'm not going to take very good care of them. You know, I'm not, because really good care is more than just meeting some standard that society imposes on you. Um, Otherwise, you know, and if you violate that, that's child neglect. I mean, real care, you have to be in intimate relationship with a person. You have to deeply understand their needs and to respond flexibly to that and not see them as, as a quantifiable collection of parts, which mm-hmm. is very much how we have seen the planet. So I think that, that a truly healing environmental policy uh, would have to come from a place of love. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of foreign to policy decisions nowadays, you know, you, because they're supposed to be made on a scientific basis, which means on a quantifiable basis. And, and no one, if you walked to the policy table and said, you know, I think that we should protect this wetlands just because it's so beautiful. That's not going to fly. You have to talk about water filtration services and, and carbon sequestration services and things like that. But that, that's a bit of where I'm, where I'm, what I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. You, what you're talking about is making me think of a story of something that happened when I came to see you speak in New York. There, there was someone in the, at the talk who was an activist and stood up and made a comment about activism and, and the critical mass of people that is actually needed for change to happen and that perhaps that number is smaller than we think. And I found it really, really interesting and wanted to learn more. So after the talk, I went up to him and I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Annie, and I'm really interested in what you had to say. And the mm-hmm. first thing he said back to me was, well, only two people have come up to talk to me of this whole group, so that's not very hopeful. And it 
it sort of instantly collapsed me from a human being <laughs> in front of him wanting to engage to this numeric quantity that was not a high enough quantity for whatever he was hoping would happen. And as we continued speaking, I he asked me, what do you do? And it was clear that the it had a very utilitarian bent. Like, can mm-hmm. can can you be of use? And I started right. to tell him about some of the projects I'm involved in. And he asked, well, are you real activists? Cause, or are you new agey? Because if so, I don't want to waste my time. And yeah. I didn't really know where to go from there. And, and, it, and it struck me as that just because that's such a small instance, but it, but it so clearly helped me to see how much that way of, of seeing the world and, and proceeding has permeated so many realms, including activism. And certainly I know I've been that person where I've been yes. in some kind of place just scanning the landscape for what can I use? What are the resources here? And not at mm-hmm. all in a place that, that is willing to behold what's actually in front of me. Yes. Yeah, that's a, um, a very telling story. You know, like, and it, one thing that comes up for me there is, um, like, even if he's right, like, is it effective? Like, is it, like, how is he going to accomplish? I mean, even if he's talking, he was talking about, like, only 3% of the people are necessary, I think it was, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, like, well, how are you going to get 3% of the people to do that? Not going to be the way that he's doing it now. But I, I have, um, I, that, you know, when you were speaking, when you were, when you were telling that story, um, it, it made me think of a, a paragraph I, that in the book I'm writing. Do you mind if I read it? Please. Because I think it's related. Um, so I'm, I'm writing about, um, yeah, like, the new story, I call it, or the new and ancient story, a new frame of the debate, <clears throat> which is Earth is a living organism. Um, all beings deserve respect as alive, sentient subjects and not mere things, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm saying we have to uh, instill this story. We have to serve this story in order for anything to be really different. And I said a society that embraces this latter set of beliefs would be radically different than what we have today translated into agriculture, technology, and economics. It would bring about a commitment to ecological healing that would make current green policies seem paltry in comparison. Today, the policy ship of environmentalism must sail against the current of the story of separation. Pulling the oars furiously, the environmental movement stirs up a mighty froth. Yet for all its progress through the water, the ship is carried backward by the current. The overall condition of the planet continues to worsen. Forty years after the Clean Air Act, pollution planet-wide is worse than ever. Forty years after the Clean Water Act, the ocean's plastic outweighs its fish. Forty years after the Endangered Species Act, biodiversity on Earth is in precipitous decline. And after several decades of climate accords, climate derangement continues to intensify. Is the solution to pull even harder on the oars? If the current is unchangeable, that would be the only hope. 
Here's where the metaphor breaks down, because the current is not some arbitrary force of nature or human nature, as if we were genetically, ex- genetically disposed to destroy the world. No, the current is composed of systems created by human beings. First and foremost, the financial system, and also our systems of government, knowledge production, education, and religion. What human beings have created, they can uncreate. And so that's where, where I'm, you know, that, that's kind of like the, at least a big part of the thesis of the book. How do we uncreate the deep conditions that even make it necessary that we have to keep fighting and fighting and fighting just to even not slide back as fast as before? Like these series of holding actions as everything gets worse and worse. I mean, can't we do better than that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and then there's the question of, yeah, so maybe only 3% of super committed people are necessary, but how do we get that 3% actually out, quote, unquote, on the streets? Like, I'm not even sure if on the streets is the right metaphor, because it suggests that, like, public protest and demonstration is the best tactic. And I think that's highly, highly questionable. Um, I think we, we, this is a part I haven't really written about yet, but I'm, um, like, I think it's just when I'm working or, you know, talking to people who are doing hands-on stuff, um, the two biggest impediments to actually getting things done on a tangible local level are, one, uh, money, of course, but secondly, uh, the kind of legal infrastructure um, of, you know, zoning regulations and sanitary regulations and uh, land use things. Um, and I'm like, you know, if we took over planning commissions and boards of supervisors, you know, and township councils and like, like a lot of these local government positions never even have anyone running for them or mm-hmm. people are always unopposed because they're unpaid. They're not sexy, you know, <clears throat> and they're certainly not as, as inspiring and exciting as going out into the street and having a mass demonstration demanding of these elected officials that they do something different. Well, like, what about actually taking over government, starting at the grassroots? So I feel like, um, forgive me for, go- for going on and on here, but mm-hmm. I feel like Mm-mm. when what you're doing isn't working, you got to sometimes stop and, and, and just pause and, and meditate on it, you know, and just like do nothing for a little bit, even to, to, instead of doing even more of what's not working because you think that that's the only way out of the, of the situation. I think that mm-hmm. we have to really, as you know, environmentalists, we have to really um, acknowledge that what we've been doing hasn't worked. I mean, maybe there are some things that have worked and we can learn from those, but we need more than the kinds of isolated victories in a tide of defeat that we've been having. And, and I don't think we're going to get to that place using the same kinds of mindsets and rhetoric and strategies that we have before. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, It's time to take a short break, a pause, if you will. (laughs) 
My guest today is writer and speaker Charles Eisenstein, author of Sacred Economics and the More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know as Possible. You can find out more about Charles's work at www.charleseisenstein.net. And we will be right back after these messages on Precipice. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is writer and speaker Charles Eisenstein. Before the break, Charles, we were talking about the the shifts that need to happen so that we're not just constantly trying to be pulled downstream less quickly. Um, right. And 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 I'm wondering if you can if if we can pick up there in in talking about when. There's something there's something that feels so right about pausing and it also brings up a lot of resistance because things seem so urgent. 
Yeah. So when things are urgent um, and you know what to do about it, you better do it, do it right now as fast as possible. When things are urgent and you have no idea what to do, then sometimes doing what you've been doing and you know doesn't work is actually insane. There's, I, I, I recall, I, I, I told this, told this, I've you know, been talking about this for a few years now, and, um, you know, there's the uh, objection that, hey, you know, if the house is on fire, you can't sit around doing nothing or, you know, taking a pause or whatever. You've got to put out the fire right now. Um, and this guy said to me, you know, he, he said, I'm, I'm in a firefighter's guild and our motto is um, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. So they mm. might actually, like actual firefighters, okay, if we're going to use this metaphor, like what do actual firefighters do? Uh, they mm. sometimes maybe take stock of the situation. And this is especially the case when we're in a situation that's caused by ourselves, caused by, and you can say, you know, what is the cause of the ecological crisis? And yeah, on one level, you could say that it's, you know, the system of industry. You could say that it's um, capitalism, maybe. You could say that it's the nature of the financial system. Or if you don't, don't even go that deep, you can say it's money and politics, and we've got to rein in the corporations. And I'm not saying that those levels of, expo- of explanation are wrong, but... Where do those things come from? The, thing, the places that those come from, the deep stories that generate our civilization, those are something that we all participate in. And my, my thesis is that as long as we still inhabit those stories, we're going to continue to generate damage. As long as we inhabit the story that nature is an instrumental collection of things that or we should use for our maximum benefit, then we're going to continue generating damage, even if we do get money out of politics or whatever. So this is a circumstance. Yeah, so, so when one's own actions are themselves part of the problem, then sometimes it might be good to step back and take stock of how might I be actually contributing to the problem? through the ways that I'm trying to solve the problem. This is so widespread in our culture. Like, like on an obvious level, like what about the war on terror? You know, you wouldn't have us not respond to the terrorist attack, would you? We got to bomb those guys. Like that's what the habitual response is. But obviously, to some of us at least, that response is actually creating more of the problem. And it, it locks us into this reflexive loop, this self-reinforcing trap um, in which you know, fighting the enemy generates more enemies. And what's happening with the environmental crisis and climate change is a lot more subtle than that, but there's a lot of the same dynamic at work. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, so I'm not saying to, you know, not do anything about it and just let things slide. But mm-hmm. I think that we really have to question 
the um, the patterns of action that we are implementing right now and the kinds of arguments that we use. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's never a time to fight even, but when we're in a mindset and a worldview that offers fighting as the only option, then we're stuck. And it hasn't been working very well. So anyway, I can I could go yeah. on and on, but maybe one of Well Yeah. So so I'm right with you and I'm noticing that my impulse is to say, okay, so how do we fix it? <laughs> how do we how do we shift to a different consciousness? But I can also I recognize at this point that that question is standing in the very place where all of the, all of these structures currently are. That yeah. that there's a way in which that you know the the aspect of your work that I find I come back to over and over and over are the the pieces of writing or the interviews where you end up talking about control. Because the yeah. thing that I've noticed is how is how much that desire to 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 control things and how how ingrained that habit and that impulse are and so i i can recognize that so yeah i'm i'm just wondering about how to if we can get to the point where we say okay what we're doing isn't working there's clearly structures that were there's stories that we're standing in and there's structures we've created that are that are perpetuating the very things we want to change and we can see that there might be this other way of being that from which might spring new structures. Yeah. But, but then how the, the, the question of moving from here to there seems to be one that the tools already aren't, aren't sufficient. <laughs> the tools that we have right. that would say, how do we get there? That's already, we've already stepped into that same rut and so can you speak to that a bit yeah so i think that it's a really good place to start to say i have no idea how to get there because at least when you admit that then you're not going to be befogged by the ways that you think that you could have gotten there or the ways that you used to use to get to where you have gotten to already to, to say, I have no idea what to do. That's really healthy. And then from that, it, it creates kind of an empty place into which things that you hadn't imagined or conceived of before can enter. So I just want to, before I go on with that, I want to say that, that like control isn't necessarily a bad thing. All animals, all plants, all beings exercise some form of control in their environment. You know, birds build nests to keep out the, the wind, you know? I mean, the animals build burrows. I mean, we all, all of us, all of us beings, uh, influence our environment in ways that um, allow us to, to live. So it's not a bad thing. But the degree of control that we exercise as a civilization, the dominant civilization on Earth, is predicated on a false understanding of reality that um, ignores the intelligence and um, organic emergence of order 
in the universe and thinks that we have to impose it all onto, uh, by ourselves. And the same thing in personal life. Um, when, if you see life as kind of a random series of events without any coherency, then, you know, you've got to have a plan. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. You can't just sit back and wait for the invitation because there's no guarantee it'll come. You know, you have to control everything. So that, to the extent that control is based on a false understanding of the world or based on the story of separation that we are graduating from, it is not helpful. Perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm extra steeped in control as a habit. And so I'm, there's, a, there's a spot where it always collapses for me, where I start to lose the thread of, of how it could be possible to exercise control without it being this running amok. So I'm wondering if we can go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that there's the, the structures that are in place in a, in a lot of places need changing, like talking about local government and things like that, that there's, there's zoning and there's all these structures in place that are keeping certain projects that might move us towards structures that are more life-sustaining. It's keeping those from happening. So there's work to be done potentially to get on those planning councils and do that work. And I'm wondering how to understand the, the exercising of the type of control that might be joining a planning council and but not but doing so in a way where the entire mindset wouldn't be one that would then just recreate the same systems so basically so that was coming back to you know how do we actually change the story and one way to do it is to demonstrate by example the power and magnificence of some of the practices that come out of a new story that come out of the story of interbeing, of seeing the world as alive and intelligent and, and conscious and um, sacred. And, and so, like, I'm, I'm writing about some of these things, some of the stuff in uh, regenerative agriculture, for example. What's possible is, is, is so astonishing, even if you measure it in terms of, you know, like quantitative uh, sequestration, how much carbon does this practice sequester per hectare, you know, per year, like even in those terms, uh, and while producing like five times as much food as conventional agriculture produces using no chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like on the margins, there are incredible technologies that cannot come from the mindset that civilization has inhabited for the last few centuries or longer. They come from from like really intimate relationship to nature, from deep observation, from assuming that nature is incredibly intelligent and then uh, learning from that. Uh, biomimicry might be another example of one of these technologies of reunion. So this isn't just like a bunch of philosophical stuff. <clears throat> it bears fruit in the form of practices, technologies, and potentially policies that can heal the damage that we've done to this planet. 
So I think one way to, to change the story is to act from the story, to showcase what's possible. And then another way to change the story is to connect people with the truth that the old story has left out. Because I think on some level, everybody knows that when you, when you look at a tree or even a rock or a pond, on some level, we understand like, yeah, that's a being. A very different being than I am, but that's a being. And, and how do we connect people with that kind of pre-civilized knowledge so that when the moment comes, they're prepared to act on it? So anyway, I could talk more about that, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, that's certainly... I, I, I do have that question in the sense that my, my experience is that the experiences that I've had in my life that woke me up to that possibility were not were things that hap- just happened. I didn't necessarily seek them out. And yeah. so, again, with that, with that stickiness around control, where is that balance around making available or, or helping people to have the kinds of experiences that might allow such shifts to happen, but not from a place of, we have to make this happen because it does feel like that that tightness doesn't really work. Uh-huh. And that's, that's where I think I get stuck a little bit is, is that there's still this binary that I fall into where I can understand the idea of completely letting go of control and total receptivity. And I can, and I can certainly experientially understand what it's like to try to really make things happen and that dance between them is harder for me to maybe it's maybe it's just it's harder to intellectually understand but i could do it if i just let my head get it out of the way of trying to make sense of it but i'm i'm curious if you can speak to that a bit oh that yeah i mean that that's i mean you're really talking about how do you be human. I mean, how do you know when to act and when not to act? When is action forced and when is it natural? I mean, you've probably had times where you almost couldn't stop yourself from acting. And it didn't feel forced, but it wasn't doing nothing either. For me, and I'm not sure if this is universal, but for me, when my action is effective, it follows some kind of invitation to act. I'm responding to an invitation, which could be a direct invitation or a very indirect invitation. And it could be, you know, a person in need or, um, you know, something, something gets under my skin and pulls at me and I almost can't stop myself from, from acting on it. And when I do, then it seems to me that the action bears fruit rather than someone saying, well, Charles, you know, you should work to institute a carbon tax because if you don't, then nothing else you care about is going to matter. And I've had this conversation before I, with uh, a very 
uh, influential environmentalist, and he said, uh, "Did I say this? Did I talk about? Did I tell the story in when I was in New York?" Um, when, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, when are you going to be relevant? Because a lot of the things I care about are really hard to explain how they can be relevant if we're facing, you know, a five-year or ten-year window to to uh, halt climate change before it's too late. Like, what if? What do you say to someone whose life's work is in is to say, um, um, stop? female genital mutilation from happening. You know, like, who cares from the perspective of climate change, you know, if the whole, if, if the ecological basis of human life is going to be obliterated in however many decades, then does it really matter so much, you know, if, if this practice, I mean, sure, it's a terrible thing, but, I mean, compared to this bigger thing. So, to, but for me to make decisions based on that kind of um, instrumental logic doesn't get me anywhere. And I might be like, yeah, you're right. Instead of this thing that I really care about that couldn't possibly make a macro difference, I'd better devote my energy to this thing that could make a macro dis- difference because it has it's, it's the leverage point or something like that. It could be scalable. Like, my heart isn't in it. You know, even if my brain says, yeah, this is what you should be doing because it'll have a bigger impact, a bigger reach, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I get this as an author, you know, who has an audience. Like, like some things I can do with my time are going to reach one person or five, and other things could reach 10,000 or 50,000. So the numbers say that I should do the thing that reaches 50,000. But often my heart says I should do the thing that reaches one person. And those are, ironically, or almost paradoxically, I would say, those are often the things that end up really reaching 50,000 people, even when I didn't intend them to to begin with, when I listen to this other thing, not what the arithmetic tells me to do. So I guess what I'm saying is that we have an inner navigational system that directs us to the places where our action is most needed, even when we, take, when we don't understand how it could be that we should be uh, deployed to those places. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you I do? About? What do you want to do? You know, it's this desire, this care, this, this innate energy to do a certain thing. Is that the enemy that we have to conquer in mirroring in, you know, in, in parallel to our conquest of nature? Do we have to conquer inner nature to do the right thing? Like maybe we need to trust nature more internally as well as externally. Mm-hmm. Well, I could keep talking for a long time. I think we have to end there. Um, thank you so much, Charles, for for that last piece and for everything. And thank you for joining me today and for your ongoing work, making visible the stories and structures that have, that have generated so many of the crises we're facing and for helping me and others see ways that it could be different. Thanks, Annie. 
Yeah. Thank you. My, yeah. my guest today has been Charles Eisenstein, author of several books, most recently, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. To read Charles's books and essays, please visit www.charleseisenstein.net. It has been such a pleasure to be here with you all today. Please join us next week for Susan Olesic and the Nine Prisons One Key series at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.